Hi, I'm Helena Cobbin, the president of Just World Educational. Do visit our website, www.justworldeducational.org, to learn more about the educational resources we offer and to support our work. On July 9th, Recep Tayyip Erdogan was inaugurated to a new term as Turkey's president, a position that he recently transformed into a much stronger executive presidency, meaning he is now both Turkey's head of state and its head of government. In the elections held in late June, President Erdogan won the presidency and by making an alliance with the right-wing MHP party, his party, the AKP, was able to win a clear majority in the country's parliament. Shortly after Erdogan's inauguration, I conducted a 45-minute interview about what it means for Turkey and the region with Professor Richard Falk, a distinguished international jurist who has many close ties to Turkey, where he spends most of each summer. Professor Falk is also on our board at Just World Educational. In the previous episode of this podcast, I shared the portion of our conversation where we discussed the implications of Erdogan's inauguration for Turkey's domestic politics. In this episode, we discuss the prospects for Turkey's position in the Middle East and to some extent globally. Please note that I was talking with Professor Falk on an imperfect phone connection with his family's home in southern Turkey. At one point, there was also some fairly loud construction work going on nearby, but luckily it didn't last too long. Just before this portion of the conversation, I'd noted the sparse attendance of foreign ambassadors at Erdogan's inauguration, with Western and most Arab ambassadors notably seeming to boycott it. Here's how our conversation carried on from there. Let's take, first of all, the regional issues, which would be... um, Turkey's relations with Arab countries um, and uh, Israel at this point. What do you see as happening? Uh, Well, again, it's it's, uh, complex and no uh, easy clarification is, it seems to me, plausible. One important element is the uh, perception by Turkey uh, that the U.S. has sided with the uh, radical uh, Kurdish elements in the Syrian context, and particularly the the Syrian group that is seen as allied with the PKK, which is the Marxist-oriented Kurdish group that has been in the Iraqi Uh, mountains now for uh, many years and is perceived here again across a wide spectrum as a as a violent if not terrorist uh, organization accused of all sorts of atrocities so the the the, this divide over uh, the Kurdish issue goes quite deep in uh, I think the thinking of the Erdogan uh, leadership because they see the Kurdish concern as very closely linked uh, to uh, Turkish uh, stability and uh, national interest and very remote to the uh, U.S. stability and interest and therefore they see it as 
showing a disregard of uh, Turkish uh, concerns that is not consistent with uh, NATO solidarity. So that that's I, one dimension. I think that, that that's absolutely true that the Kurdish issue is really for any concept of a Turkish state an existential issue because Kurds make up what percent, I mean a, a significant percentage of Turkey's national population and Kurds are, you know, widespread in the East, but there are also a lot of Kurds in, in the West, and they are Turkish citizens. They have full citizenship rights, and they have this one or maybe another also political party that generally represents their interests. So I was surprised um, by the degree to which the American military, when they went into northern Syria, completely allied themselves with, I think it's called the YPG, sometimes the yeah. YPK, and without apparently either understanding or caring about that organization's close ties to the PKK. It was it just viewed, you know, from here inside the United States, it looks like a willful act of blindness to the fact that you know, these Kurdish militias with whom they were allying there in northeastern Syria were promulgating Abdullah Ojalan's thought in all their, you know, training sessions. And the American people with them seemed not to understand who Apo Ojalan was or, or what he meant or what that would mean for their relationship with Turkey. It seemed like willful ignorance, but I'm not sure. <laughs> I think it's willful. I'm not sure about the ignorance because I think there isn't a see again. I think it goes back to the uh, uh, affinities between uh, the U.S., Israel, and Saudi Arabia in the present context, and I think they they see the Kurdish issue as a way of weakening the. Um, uh, Turkish role in the region, uh, and uh, so I'd be, I be—I think it's a fairly sophisticated. Uh, it may not be what, uh, completely understood uh, in in the Pentagon, but uh, it's a pretty sophisticated effort to use uh, the Kurdish struggle as a kind of wedge issue in promoting this anti-Turkish international campaign. The other very important dimension of the regional dimension is the fact that uh, Turkey has been on and off friendly with Iran. Uh, it originally, as you remember, tried to promote the uh, nuclear uh, agreement before uh, several years before the Obama initiative in 2015. And uh, Turkey, because of a feeling that they couldn't count on Western solidarity, felt that it was important to uh, open uh, friendlier economic and political diplomatic channels with both uh, Russia and China. So the, uh, the, the, these two things are very important, I think, to keep in mind, that the uh, priority of the Israel-Saudi-U.S. 
coalition is to put pressure on Iran, possibly uh, seeking regime change there. And uh, they see Turkey as an impediment to that strategy, including Turkish opposition to the uh, reimposition of harsh sanctions. So, right. So have the um, and of course, now with John Bolton being the uh, the national security advisor, um, that agenda of promoting regime change in Iran is is no doubt um, being pursued with great gusto by various organs of the U.S. government. So I think you know Turkey's concern on that front is is quite credi- credible and warranted. And, of course, any kind of instability in Iran would have immediate um, reverberations in Turkey. So I'm glad you you put in that point about Iran being – policy toward Iran being one of the the probable drivers of of Western hostility to to Turkey is an important one. However, um, until a couple of years ago – the interests of um, certainly Saudi Arabia, the U.S., and Turkey with respect to regime change in Syria seemed all to be aligned, and Turkey was actually a, you know, an indispensable part of that anti-Assad alliance because it was the Turkish border that allowed um, – Saudi and various Gulf countries to funnel huge amounts of arms across the Turkish border into northern Syria with the uh, with the Americans' um, blessing and even on occasion active participation. But um, then a couple of years ago, less than that, maybe the end of 2016, Turkey backed off apparently, from the regime change agenda in Syria. Is that how you see it? Could you speak a little bit about that? Uh, yes. I, I think that it, uh, what you say is essentially accurate. I think the early uh, anti-Assad uh, position was, uh, uh, that Turkey adopted was somewhat different than uh, the Saudi uh, sectarian-driven uh, opposition, uh, although uh, it wasn't uh, absent exactly uh, in the Turkish uh, policy. But the Turkish policy was uh, premised, I believe, on the uh, disappointment uh, that Turkey had with uh, uh, the Assad government. You, you remember that the zero uh, problems with neighbors policy featured Syria as the poster child of the new look in Turkish foreign policy. Well, well, that's right. And then very, very speedily, that early Erdogan policy of uh, that was promulgated, I think, by his then foreign minister, Daudolu, um, of no problems, no problems with the neighbors became transformed, it seemed to me, into into a policy of no neighbors without problems. I mean, <laughs> there were problems all around. <laughs> that was Especially the slope. With Syria. The slope, but you, you have to understand that for all countries, 
there was no anticipation of the uh, Arab Spring developments of 2011, and more relevantly for Turkey, the counter-revolutionary actions that took place from 2012 uh, till the present. And Saudi Arabia and Turkey were completely on opposite sides in Egypt. And uh, from the very beginning, from the beginning, the Saudis were very frightened by the success of the Muslim Brotherhood, despite its Sunni uh, orientation, Sunni Sunni, uh, uh, roots. And that was because they fear more, much more than they fear uh, Shiites. They fear a democratically oriented Islamic movement as threatening to the monarchy. Turkey, on the other hand, saw the development in Egypt as a very positive. I mean, Erdogan was viewed as a great hero in uh, Egypt. And uh, and he actually, I don't know if you remember, but in 2011, shortly after the overthrow of Mubarak, Erdogan went to Cairo and told the Muslim Brotherhood in a public speech not to seek immediate power, that uh, he advocated a a kind of secular uh, transition and uh, suggested that uh, Egypt would be much more stable and successful if they pursued something closer to the uh, Turkish model. And, of course, that was resented by the Brotherhood at that time. Uh, And they saw, uh, although they themselves initially said they would not seek the presidency, they realized they had an opportunity that might not return in the future to win popular approval. And so they did participate, and that, of course, uh, fomented both uh, the internal... Uh, reactions and uh, the Gulf countries trying to uh, encourage a counter-revolutionary move. See, and the whole relationship of the West to Egypt is interesting in relation to the human rights uh, democracy agenda because certainly the Sisi regime in Egypt has been far more violently repressive than anything Erdogan has done yet it's given a virtual free pass in the international uh, discourse and by the mainstream media. You almost never read about anything uh, happening in Egypt, even though from the very beginning it was a very bloody transition. Right. Um, I, I do agree with you. I think that... The, uh, the the Saudis and um, their allies, including quite probably some of the Americans in Egypt, cre- had this amazing um, success in creating a, a completely astroturf organization called Tamarod that led the yes. counter-revolution in, in Egypt, which was very disturbing to all of us who had hoped to see a kind of a blossoming of democracy there. Let's move, though, to Syria, where Turkey's role was even more important. And in my view, really, 
very counter-revolutionary, very, very supportive of what the Saudis and the Americans were pursuing in Syria, which was the overthrow of the, as it happens, elected government there. Yeah, I, I don't, I do uh, somewhat disagree with you there. Uh, as you may not know, I'm a rather close friend of Davatolu, and I think I understand his thinking and respect his integrity and intelligence, but he made a, a series, I think, of uh, serious miscalculations in the early stages of the, their policy towards Syria. One of them was that they uh, viewed Syri the, Syri the Damascus regime as much more isolated from the Syrian population than turned out to be the case, and much less uh, easily challenged than uh, Gaddafi's uh, regime had been challenged in Libya. So that was one set of miscalculations. Another was that they had these high hopes for the positive relationship with Assad and even developed personal friendships between these leading families in uh, the Assad government and uh, uh, the Turkish government. And there was a, a, a point after, just after the initial uprising in Syria, where Erdogan and uh, Davatolo went to Damascus and uh, thought they had persuaded uh, uh, Assad to inaugurate a series of reforms, and then returned finding that none of this was being implemented, and they then felt that he had betrayed them personally and politically and joined with Hillary Clinton at that time in pursuing this, uh, what you're correctly, I'm not sure whether I'd call it exactly counter-revolutionary, but certainly a uh, a, a reactionary and possibly uh, terrorist kind of uh, opposition into power. It, it does strike me that um, President Erdogan, um, with or without the advice of Davudolu at that time, he seemed to be um, taking major decisions very much on a kind of uh, on an emotional basis. You know, like, oh, Assad didn't take my advice, therefore we will join the attempt to overthrow him. Is that incorrect? Uh, I think there is a strong emotional element, in, not in uh, Davatolo, who's extremely rational and uh, mm -hmm. uh, thoughtful, but uh, certainly in uh, Erdogan's political style. In, in the context of the Syrian policy, I think uh, Davatolu probably is responsible for the uh, basic uh, turn against uh, Damascus, or at least more responsible. And he, his mistakes, I think, were based on uh, these miscalculations, both 
political uh, misunderstanding of the opposition and a uh, uh, misunderstanding of the degree of support that uh, the Damascus government had and the capabilities of its uh, military to uh, protect and defend the government. Uh, but on, in Erdogan's case, I think in the early stages, he was emotionally uh, affected by not so much uh, the fact that uh, uh, Assad didn't follow his uh, recommendations, but I think it's more was a sense of a betrayal that they had put a lot of a political, they devoted a lot of political capital to this positive relationship, and then it was uh, undermined in their view. And despite a, I think, genuine effort to uh, restore it, uh, Assad, uh, they felt, was responsible for uh, a, a betrayal, and and uh, he didn't deal with them in an, in an uh, honest way. Well, I think, you know, it would be great for somebody to write a book or a deeply researched paper at some point on, on the origins of, of that decision to join the regime change project in Syria. Because, it, I mean, that project has been responsible for so much suffering in Syria and the destruction of so many state institutions and, you know, the waves of people displaced internally and externally. And finally, now it seems that the government is able to reassert its, its, uh, its control over nearly all the national territory. Um, and nobody ever had an alternative to that. I think the alternative would have been what we've seen in Libya, where you have had the complete destruction of state institutions and the resurgence of militias and warlords and slavery and slave markets and goodness only knows what there in Libya. But um, let's hope in regarding Turkish-Syrian relations, um, just looking back, Quickly over these past seven years of Turkish um, intervention in Syria, obviously Turkey suffered considerable blowback um, from the from both the Kurdish um, resurgence in eastern Turkey and also from many Salafist and Takfiri Islamists who, you know, were were kind of who came back to Turkey and obviously created their own problems there, as we saw with, with several um, very unpleasant um, terrorist institutions, including in Ankara. Um, so maybe now the two governments could calm it and get together and figure out what to do about all these remaining issues, of which you know there are how many millions of, of Syrian refugees in Turkey there, there are Kurdish issues to be um, looked at rationally. There's the whole situation in Idlib. What, what do you think? Do you think that's a possibility that uh, with Russian help, and the Russians have been important in... Yes, uh, I, think, I think it's a real possibility. I think that uh, the Turkish current position is 
to abandon that uh, regime change perspective and to consider the only uh, important dimensions to be what you say, uh, the Kurdish uh, problems in uh, parts of the of Syria, that, especially those that border Turkey, and uh, uh, the refugee issue, which is not as uh, serious here as one would expect it to be, even though there are uh, upwards of four million uh, Syrian and Iraqi refugees in the country. It's an amazing thing that they've been able to absorb these refugees and have treated them better than they've been treated almost anywhere else, as far as I know. So, um, how much longer are you going to be in Turkey this summer? Till the end of October. Oh, fantastic. So, I hope you see many, many uh, positive things happening there, and maybe we can talk about them again in a, in a month or so. Good. I'd love to do that. And good talking this time. Thank you so much, Richard. This is great.